Now, I made something of a big deal that we started the second chapter of Genesis last week. You know that the chapter and verse divisions that you find in your Bibles are not found, were not part of the original. And in reality, the second chapter probably should begin at verse 4 or maybe verse 5, but in all likelihood, not verses 2 chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, which is what I preached last time. So now is where we are in the second chapter, and you should turn there so that you can follow along as I intend to cover a fair number of verses today. But let's begin with prayer. Lord, we have worshipped you and sung your praises and offered thanksgiving to you for your many and varied blessings upon us. And we have also heard your word read, especially uh, the text in 2 Timothy, which highlights the enormous, supreme value of your word for every aspect of our lives. And yet, Lord, in our time, there are many who attack your word, and there are many who deny your word, and there are even those within the church who would reinterpret your word. And this happens perhaps nowhere more so than in these opening chapters of Genesis that we find ourselves in at this time. And so a part of what ought to be done and I am trying to do is apologetic. It is to answer some of these criticisms as there are plenty that are just simply unworthy of response. Guide us this morning that we may take in not only your truth for our lives, but understand and see that we can, with confidence, believe what you have said, what you have plainly told us, without apology, without fear that we are somehow making a grave error, as many in our time seem to think. So be with us now as we open your truth again. Now in Genesis chapter 2. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord, or Yahweh, God, that's Elohim, made earth and heaven. The account or the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that Yahweh Elohim made earth and heaven. Well, as I already alluded to in prayer, many critics of the Bible, many what we would identify as liberal, even scholars of the Bible, have suggested that the opening chapter of Genesis, which we have covered, and the second chapter of Genesis represent they argue, two different accounts of creation written by different authors long after the time of Moses. And these two different accounts are at odds with one another. Certainly, they say, they are at odds with one another in terms of the order, and we'll see some of that as we march through it, of created things. And they also say that these are two different accounts by different authors because the two accounts, the first chapter up through verse 3 of chapter 2, and then verse 4 and following, use different names for God. And if they have different names for God, that must mean that there were different authors who wrote these things. In actual fact... Genesis chapter 2 gives us more details regarding especially the sixth day of creation. You have six creation days, and Genesis 2 gives us a good bit more detail, especially about that sixth creation day, the creation of Adam and Eve, their intended purposes and their relationship to one another is expanded on to a great extent in the second chapter. Assuming authors of these two chapters, because of different names used for God, which is why I referred to the Hebrew, assuming that completely misunderstands 
the fact that God communicates different aspects of who he is by using different names. There are far more names for God than we find in these opening chapters of Genesis. All through scripture, God uses a whole variety of names for himself that are actually meant to help us to understand something more of his character, the fullness of who he, who he is. It is not as though, although many have claimed it, it is not as though people only know God by one name. But you would think that based on the way critics view it, because if there's a different name for God is used, that must mean it's a different author of that part. Never mind there's no manuscript evidence of different authors. Just simply, there's different names for God used. The name Elohim, now you heard that in verse 4 of chapter 2, but the name Elohim by itself found through the first chapter is the name that signifies omnipotent, that is, all-powerful deity and, and the God who is the majestic creator of the universe, Elohim. Yahweh, this name comes up now in the second chapter, Genesis 2, in this name for God is God's covenant relationship name, his, we might say, personal name wherein he is seen what's highlighted is he is man's redeemer savior he is he is the god who has this salvation relationship with his followers yahweh elohim together and that was in verse four so you put the two names together uh, this is found in genesis 2 it's found in genesis 3 in many cases that combination emphasizes the fact that the intimate, personal relationship God, the saving God, is none other than the creator of the universe. They are one and the same. This is perhaps important because, as you know, there have been all sorts of peoples all over the earth who have all sorts of beliefs about God or gods. And in many cases, they believe in many gods and they'll have a creator God, and they'll have a God who emphasizes love, and they'll have a God who emphasizes some other mercy or whatever, judgment, you name it. And, and it's different gods. The Bible makes it clear there's only one true God, and, and he has all these various attributes aligned in one person, and that's emphasized by saying Yahweh Elohim together. In other words, the transcendent, the God, the great God, the God who is beyond us, the transcendent God of Genesis chapter 1 is one and the same as the imminent, personal, relatable, comes right to us, will come to us in the person of his son. The same God there affirmed in Genesis 2 and 3. Now, Jesus himself viewed, contrary to so many today who view it differently, Jesus himself viewed Chapter 1 and chapter 2 in Genesis as a single, unified, historically accurate account. When he was commenting on marriage, he quoted Genesis 1 and verse 27 in Matthew 19 and verse 4. And he quotes Genesis 2 and verse 24, so a verse from both of the chapters. There he quotes that one in Matthew 19 and verse 5. Puts them right together as though they're all just part of the same historical, factual account from the same source. Well, we'll correct various alleged contradictions between these two chapters as we move through the text this morning. But first, we must consider the opening phrase of verse 4 of chapter 2. This is the account of, or your Bible may read, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth. Now you must not miss what that phrase tells us because it is critically important in regard to so many, especially theistic evolutionists, who say that the creation account in Genesis is mythical, it's legendary, it's perhaps poetic, and they say this because of assumed contradictions 
of a literal, straightforward reading of Genesis, reading it for what it appears to say, that is believed to be contrary to conclusions drawn by modern science. I would challenge all of that, have alluded to that in, in past sermons. The Hebrew word in this case, in verse 4, is toledoth. That's the word translated either account or generations in verse 4. That word is found 10 times in the Genesis narrative, and it is a strong, clear, unmistakable indicator of an historical account. God is bluntly communicating in the use of that term, which he uses throughout the book of Genesis, in the use of that term, God is bluntly communicating that the events of chapters 1 and 2 at least, ongoing, but at least of 1 and 2, as with the rest of Genesis, are part of what Francis Schaeffer would have called real space-time history. They are not legendary, that nothing about these chapters is legendary, nothing about it is mythical, nothing about it is even poetic as the very common elements of Hebrew parallelism, which you find in, say, Psalms, um, are simply not present in the opening chapters here, Genesis 1 through 11. Interestingly, liberal Christians or scholars who are in particular those among them experts in the Hebrew language in other words they have done great study in the language Hebrew language in particular they will say that the creation account is presented is presented they will say as a literal historical account because that's the way the, the Hebrew reads. That's the meaning of the Hebrew terms. Now, liberals will say they just think that it's false. They don't think it's true, but that's the way it presents itself. It's so many conservative, Bible-believing Christians, those who want to uphold the Word of God as even inerrant, um, who, who struggle often with Genesis chapters 1 through 11. They think that modern science has made belief, for instance, in a young earth, in other words, not billions or millions of years. They think that modern science has made belief in six literal days of creation. They think that modern science has made belief in a worldwide flood. We haven't gotten to the flood of Noah yet, but we will see it's presented as a worldwide flood. Flood. They think all of these things, many, many conservative Christians think all of these things are impossible to accept in light of the findings of modern science. So they take the opening of Genesis, these opening chapters, as either figurative as a whole or in large part figurative or non-literal, mythical, poetic. But then... Here comes this word toledoth in chapter 2 and verse 4, which is like, for studiers of the language, this is like a neon sign saying that what is recorded here is literal historical truth. Even liberal scholars of Hebrew admit that's what's being claimed, that's what's being presented. We just think it's wrong. We just think it's not true. And of course, theistic evolutionists or progressive creationists who take this non-literal, non-historical view of the opening of Genesis will so often eventually struggle with other parts of Scripture because if the foundation, and that's what the first 11 chapters of Genesis are, if the foundation of all of God's Word is not literally true as it states itself, that casts doubt on what follows. Now, normally, the struggle is with just the opening chapters, but logically, that leads to problems with so many other chapters that follow. Those who accept Genesis 1 to 11 as it presents itself in context as real history, just like the history of World War II, okay, know that what God has told us here is what he did and how long it took and even 
about how long ago he did it. Now, I haven't talked specifically about that, but I will, not today, but I will, about how long ago he did it. In this fourth verse, we find the word day. This is the same word that we find in Genesis chapter 1, the first day, the second day, the third day, etc. Here the word day might be, might be one of the rare biblical examples of the use of this word not referring to a single literal day. Now, it could be a reference literally to day one of creation. That might be what's meant, in which case it's being used again of a literal single day. But perhaps in this case, it refers, given what's stated there in verse 4, to all six creation days together when God created the heavens and the earth and all that they contain, in which case day is being used to sort of sum up all six. However, I think likely... It is used here in Genesis 2 and verse 4 because here it comes, and I know this is boring and grammatical, it comes with an, an inseparable preposition. And when that happens with the word day, often it means, now it doesn't happen very often because the word day almost always in the Bible means literal days. But when that happens, likely then the phrase in the day that calls for what we call an idiomatic meaning and the, the, the translation would be simply, in the day that, or when, when. So let me read it again. This is the account of the heavens and the earth, when they were created, when the Lord God made earth and heaven. Now, no shrub of the field was yet in the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted, for the Lord God had not sent rain upon the earth, and there was no man to cultivate the ground. But a mist used to rise from the earth and water the whole surface of the ground. Now here we have the first alleged contradiction with Genesis chapter 1. If you recall, God created vegetation on day 3 of the 6 days. According to Genesis chapter 1, verses 11, 12, and 13. And yet here you have various plants, it seems, that follow... It sounds like they follow man's creation on day six. Well, the terms that were used in Genesis 1, verses 11 specifically, were broad and we might say all-encompassing terms. Vegetation, plants, trees, or at least fruit trees, all varieties. Whereas here in Genesis 2 and verse 5, it is shrub, or plant of the field, which seems like special categories of vegetation in the garden, which require cultivation, which God waited to bring forth once man was present. In other words, once God created man. He created man on the sixth day. He creates vegetation on the third day, but perhaps some specific types of vegetation he holds back from sprouting until man is present. If that's the case, and I think it is, there is no contradiction. These plants, or some of them, seem also to require rain, which God had not caused to occur yet. Rather, he watered the ground by a mist, or literally it might mean flow, which may refer to a spring. Some creationists, now I'm talking about those who think this is literal history and six literal days, some creationists have thought that rain does not come until the time of Noah's flood. That prior to Noah's flood, there was just this mist or flow or spring, whatever it's referring to, that's not entirely clear. Um, and then rain comes at the time of Noah's flood. But while a mist or spring was original, Genesis 2, verses 5 and 6, do not actually rule out rain coming earlier than the flood. Those creationists who think that rain came only at the point of the flood tie it to their, their view of a vapor canopy at the time of the flood raining out, bringing the waters 
down. But the text doesn't say that rain only comes that much later. And in fact, does the text not imply that God waited for certain plants to sprout until man is there to cultivate them and until there is rain? Did he wait until the flood for that? Or did he actually bring rain sooner than that and man is involved with those plants in a special way? God created man, another thing we get, we grasp in verses 4 and 5. He creates man to work together with him in tilling the soil and caring for it. God, God has man working as his cultivator, if you will, working by God's grace and empowerment. So in that, we see, and this is an important principle, that work is not a curse. Work is not evil. It is an opportunity to cooperate with God as faithful stewards of his creation. Whatever your work is. Work did not become toil until after man sinned. Work in itself is not inherently evil. It's good. But it was made difficult after man sinned. We are meant to work, especially those of us who believe, who are redeemed. We are meant to live our lives working, if you will, for the good of others and for the glory of God. This should, this should pervade our entire work life. Whether you work at home or whether you work elsewhere, it should be the attitude we have before our God. Now, verse 7. Then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground... And breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Formed indicates an act of creation by careful design, divine intentionality. God as potter, if you will, working out his creative plan, forms man. Man is not an afterthought. Man is not, oh, I've created this beautiful world. I've come up with an idea. I've thought of human beings. I'll, I'll throw one in. Man is not an afterthought. He is the intentional product of the infinite mind that designed everything from the atom to the cosmos. Or today we should go smaller than the atom. God gave particular care and personal attention to how he formed man for the purposes in which he created man. Lest man, all of us, think too highly of ourselves, God creates man from dust or soil, reigning in human pride. As Paul says eventually in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 47, man is from the earth, earthy. That didn't mean that Paul thinks that God didn't create man. He's from God, of course. But he was created from dust or from soil. Being living beings, verse 7, humans are members of the animal world, if you will. And yet we are distinct from those animals. We are of similar makeup to the animals. We draw our breath in the same way as do the animals. But God breathed life into man. That's different. Making us unlike the other animals. We're never told that God breathed life in this way into all of the animals. Animals have the breath of life. Genesis 7 verse 22. But it's not imparted to them as it was imparted to man. And that's meaningful. What God did there is meaningful. Man is immortal. Man has immense capacities beyond the animals. Man or humans are responsible. Humans have great potential for glory as well as disaster. Animals are amoral, meaning they don't make moral choices. They are not accountable in terms of right and wrong the way humans are. Humans are capable of making actual moral choices that are meaningful and indicate something about us. This initial forming of man from dust, the material elements, 
This does not constitute the life of man. That only comes clearly in the verse when God breathes into man, then man is living. He's a living being. The animals are living beings, but man became living at the point where God breathed into him. He didn't do this with the animals. Breathed into conveys a warmly personal, face-to-face -face sort of intimacy. This is a being by breathing in that God is declaring has this ability to have an intimate relationship with me. So intimate that in effect he shares my direct breath. Man has a much closer relationship to God than the animals. Man is continually and uniquely dependent on God for our life force, Job 27 and verse 3. And whenever God takes man's breath away, man dies. Psalm 104, verses 29 and 30. So man of dust, that's a part of that origin, is in the image of God. Only he of all creation, only he and she, because this will apply to both, obviously, can hear the word of God. And under God, human beings are to rule creation itself. We already saw that in the first chapter. Evolution, mind you, again, again to show how these two just don't go together. Evolution argues that man evolved from other living creatures. One of my professors in seminary, Gleason Archer, a man who I have enormous respect for, now deceased, but he said, he believed, that God took an ape-like hominid and gave it a soul. No. Man was created from the ground. But from the very beginning of man's life, from the breathing in by God, Man was a psychosomatic unity, meaning a union of body and soul. In Psalm 51 and verse 5, David says in God's inspired word that he was conceived. He was conceived in sin. In other words, he existed as a living being, soul and body, from conception. This becomes very important in the modern debate about abortion. There is no indication in Scripture that at some later point, God gives humans their soul. That comes at conception, when life begins. And it came for Adam when life began for him, which was when God breathed into the soil that he made Adam from. Now look on at verse 8. The Lord God planted a garden toward the east in Eden, and there he placed the man whom he had formed. Out of the ground the Lord God caused every, to grow every tree that is pleasing in the sight and good for food, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and from there it divided and became four rivers, the name of the first is Pishon. It flows around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. The bedellum and the onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gion. It flows around the whole land of Cush. The name of the third river is Tigris. It flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. Providing man such a special place is a measure of God's love for man. Eden means a delight or a place of much water. The garden was a paradise from the hand of God. History began in this paradise of a garden in which man sinned. But history leads to a glorious garden city, Revelation 21 and verse 22, in which there will be no sin. The change came about because the garden of Geth because at another garden, the garden of Gethsemane, God's son surrendered 
to the Father's will, and he went on to die on a cross for the sins of the world. The historical names here indicate that Eden was a real place, just as the modern rivers, Tigris and Euphrates, are real places. The Garden of Eden was not some fairyland story with only spiritual meaning. There are entirely too many, often even believing Christians, who think that today. Verse 15. Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. The Lord commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. Now, the previous verses I read made it sound like you had man and then God made trees. Genesis 1, trees, then you have man. I'll answer that related to future verse. So, verses 15, 16, and 17. Paradise, before the fall, is not a place of idleness again. It is a place of work serving the Lord in joy. Perhaps you will be or are a garden tender like Kent Crew or Dan Marsman or Scott Rice. But whatever your work, it should be done, can be done to the glory of God and it need not be just painful toil, but abundant joy. The fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We should not think of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil as though it had some special power or some magical ability to convey a knowledge of good and evil. I think that's the wrong understanding. Adam already knew good. When he and Eve disobeyed and ate, then they knew evil in relation to good. To eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil would confer an experiential knowledge of good, which they had, and evil as well. But it would also bring death. Why, therefore, was this test, if you will, because God said you can eat of any of the trees, not that one. Why was that test necessary? God wanted man to love and obey him freely and willingly. And not because we are programmed to do so like robots who have to obey. The choice itself is foundational to genuine love, which was vital to the kind of relationship that God wants with man. God wanted man to learn about freedom and obedience and to know that obedience brings blessing and to know that disobedience brings judgment. Adam and Eve desired wisdom. I'm scrunching way down. We'll expand it in Genesis 3. They desired wisdom, but they sought it outside of the word and the will of God. They usurped God's role in determining what is right and wrong. They decided they will determine that for themselves. Which gets to the very heart of what we call today original sin. Sidestepping God's word and will in order to become wise and to be our own masters in defiance of God's sovereignty. Moral autonomy brought death when Adam did it his way, not God's. In contrast, Jesus, the second Adam, lived, as you know, by every word from the mouth of God. Jesus lived every second of his life on earth according to the will of and in radical dependence on God's word. He believed the bare word of God. He didn't reinterpret it. He didn't change it. He didn't reject it. He believed the bare word of God. The first Adam decided to disregard God's revealed will, word, and command and seek wisdom on his own. He obtained the knowledge of good and evil, and it killed him as he pursued it his own way. 
And so it is with us. What we do with the word of God, what we do with Jesus is everything. Well, what sort of death came as a result of man's violation by eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Was it physical death or was it spiritual death? Or I might say, was it merely spiritual death? Yes, at the fall, there was a separation of man and God, a spiritual separation. And yet, Adam's punishment after the fall, if you look ahead to Genesis 3 and verse 19, is so obviously physical death. So in Genesis 2, verse 17, the emphasis seems to be on the certainty of death, but not necessarily on the precise timing chronology of <coughs> physical death. Day in verse 17, Genesis 2, may mean, this may be another non-literal 24-hour day meaning, but it may mean an indefinite period of time. If physical death is the primary thought, now we quickly think it must be spiritual death because Adam and Eve didn't literally die that day. But if the primary thought is physical death, as Genesis 3 seems to focus, then from the point of their sin, Genesis 3, eating that forbidden fruit, man and Adam and Eve begin, if you will, to die physically. They've separated themselves from God spiritually, but they begin to die physically. But that process of death takes some time. When Adam sinned, he cut himself off from the source of life, God. But the dying process, in Adam's case, took 930 years. Verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it's not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature was its name. The man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. Now, it seems like I'm cutting off right in the middle of this part of the account, and in a sense I am, there is so much to be said here at the end of chapter 2, these verses and all the rest in the chapter, about the creation and about the relationship of the man and the woman. So I must uh, come back next time to talk about that, to focus on that. For now, Genesis 2, verses 18 to 20. This is a key passage for what is called day-age creationists who believe that the world is very, very old and the Bible gives us reasons in the text of Scripture to believe that the world is very, very old. Now, you remember I referred many sermons ago at the beginning of Genesis 1 to gap theorists. Gap theorists, you may recall, place a lot of time, in other words, the world can be very, very old. They place a lot of time between the first two verses of the Bible, Genesis 1-1 and 1-2. The problem with that is that to do so, they have to violate all sorts of grammatical uh, issues and the meanings of the words in those first two verses. So being a gap theorist and placing this an enormous amount of time between the first two verses of Scripture, which I already talked about in the past, is a view that is simply unworkable. And most all, conservative or liberal uh, Christians, if you will, uh, agree that the gap theory just is non-workable. But day-age creationism is still very popular among conservative Christians who want to uphold the Bible as reliable and yet assume that science has proved there is an enormous amount of time. So where are you going to put it in the biblical account? Well, they put it onto the six days of creation. There are day-age creationists who believe certain aspects of evolution. There are other day-age creationists who don't accept evolution at all. They simply believe that what's been established is the world is very, very old. 
So we must understand the Bible in such a way as to accommodate that. The entire Old Testament faculty at our denominational seminary, our Evangelical Free Church Seminary in Chicago, when I was there, professors who are all at that point, well, they still are, I believe, inerrantists, meaning they believe the word of God is reliable, literally true, every single word. Uh, a group of professors, when I was present there, for whom I have enormous respect, but all of the Old Testament faculty, when I was present, were day-age creationists. On that point, I disagreed with them, and we had numerous discussions in and outside of classes. Now, when I say that, understand, um, albeit that disagreement, when I got done with my Master of Divinity, I decided that I should do a Master of Theology in Old Testament. I applied at various places, and I was accepted at Princeton, which back then would have been a sort of prestigious school to go to for a Master of Theology in Old Testament. But as I considered the faculty at Princeton, and I considered the faculty at Trinity, the faculty at Trinity, in my opinion, was the best Old Testament faculty at that time in the entire world. So I stayed at Trinity. Nevertheless, I did disagree with them about this age issue. The word day, yom in Hebrew, is found over 2,200 times in the Old Testament. Day age guys, like my professors, point out, and they're absolutely right about this, yom or day does not always mean a literal day, a literal 24-hour solar day. Although in the vast majority of those 2,200 plus incurrences, it does. They think, day-agers, that the six creation days can be understood as long ages. Day does not have to mean a literal day. So they say in Genesis 1, it does not mean that. Now it's true, day can mean a variety of things. The word day can mean the light part of the day. We find that in Genesis 1. It can mean a literal day. I think we find that in Genesis 1 and a whole lot of other places. It can sometimes even mean an indefinite period of time. You think about references to the Lord's day. This is a prophetic reference. Is that a singular day or is that a period of time? I'll just tell you that it's not clear in every case that the Lord's day is, maybe in some cases it means a single day, in some cases it may mean a period of time, a period of judgment. So a day can be used that way, and it, and, and it occasionally is. Um, however, that a day might mean an age, or millions, or even a billion years in Scripture, that, I think, is a rather large stretch. Context, of course, is the issue. And the fact that the six creation days in Genesis 1 are defined by the language evening and morning, which is extremely definitive, and the fact that God in the Ten Commandments establishes a work week for man of six literal days and of labor and one day of rest based on the same pattern and length of day that he created the universe and that he rested seems in itself, those facts seem of themselves to simply bury this day-age hypothesis in the context of Genesis 1. Day-agers often point to 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 8, which says, with the Lord, one day is like a thousand years. Now, not that 6,000 years is a whole lot of help for those who accept billions of years of earth history, but 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 8 does not say that a day equals a thousand years. It says that a day is like a thousand years when measured by what God can accomplish compared to man. If the word day in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 8 does not mean a literal day, the sense of the verse breaks down. Day-agers, again, they may not hold any part of evolution but they are impressed that the order in which God created things is so parallel to the order in which evolution suggests 
that they evolve, the order in the rock layers, for instance. And so day-agers will say, well, notice the order is so parallel, so similar, and, and thus it makes sense that these days were ages in which the layers were laid down. They think that God created these things, but in the same order over a long, long time. Now, I don't have time to go into all the different problems with the layers and the order there, and there are many. But the actual order of God's creating, those things mentioned in Genesis chapter 1, is actually out of step with the evolutionary order in huge ways. Huge ways. The earth comes first before the sun and stars. The first life was vegetation, not marine organisms. Birds come after reptiles and insects. Women or woman comes after man and from man. In the face of these and other serious problems with the order of creation, day-agers suggest that the creation days of Genesis 1 overlapped. So some things happened, not exactly the way the text relates it, but certain things happened earlier, certain things happened later, and the days overlapped. The theory that the days overlap seems to me to be a desperate attempt to maintain an unworkable theory. Nowhere in the text is there a suggestion of the overlapping of the creation days. Day-age theorists also have the problem of death before the fall of Adam and Eve. Whereas Romans chapter 5 and verse 12 says that death entered the world only after the sin of Adam. It entered the world only after the sin of Adam. Day-agers must posit that that only indicates the death of human beings at that point in spite of the fact that animals are living beings with a nephesh, with a soul, like human beings, and thus their death would seem to violate, if it came earlier, and has to, on a day-age theory, on a long history of, of Earth prior to man. That is a problem. Also, you have the problem of Romans 8, verses 18 to 22, where it's very clear that the entire creation groans, not just human beings, it seems under the curse that God brought in judgment after the fall of man. The whole creation was subjected to futility, which would involve death, decay, and corruption. And this is not at all the condition described as very good in Genesis 1, verse 31, at the conclusion of God's creating. But what about Genesis 2, verses 18 to 20? Day-agers typically assume that man or Adam was created late on the sixth day after God created the land animals first. Of course, both could easily have been created in seconds at the beginning of the sixth day. Day-agers next assume that Adam would have needed quite some time to feel lonely, lacking a partner, but the text doesn't require that. It was God's observation that it was not good that man was alone. Now I gotta pause there because not good, God observes this during the six days. I thought everything was very good. Not good in this case does not mean evil, but rather incomplete according to God's plan. God's intention was always to create man and woman. And in the account in Genesis 1, that's what it sounds like. In the sixth day, God created in his image male and female. But in chapter 2, we find out first he created Adam, and then a little later he creates Eve out of a side part of Adam. So it's not that it's evil that man is alone. It's in, in the sense of bad or something that's, that's less than good. It's that it's incomplete. God assigned Adam, the task of naming the animals, chapter 2, 18 to 20, which reinforces man's authority over the animals and the fact that in God's image, Adam was a different kind than the animals. As he names them, the, the, the recognition that he is just simply different than them would be obvious. None of the animals could ever serve as a physical, 
emotional, intellectual, or spiritual companion for man. The only possible suitable companion and helper for man was someone else made in God's image and likeness, woman. But day-agers point out that the task of naming all those animals would require an enormous amount of time, and the sixth day would have had to have been a good bit longer than 24 hours for Adam to be able to accomplish this task that day before God created the first woman on that day. As we shall see, Adam did not have to go out and collect all the animals and then name them. God brought them to him. And naming the animals was not a matter of naming all of the modern classification system identifying all the species of animals. Adam had to name the cattle kinds. Again, they were created according to their kinds. That's the livestock kinds. The birds of the air kinds. Not the many species that those of us like <coughs> David Severance, who love bird watching, enjoy identifying. And he had to name, did Adam, all the kinds of the beasts of the field, which are seemingly a subset of the kinds of beasts of the earth. Adam did not name the kinds of sea creatures or organisms. He did not name the kinds of insects or creeping things. And further, we should observe, contrary to the common thinking today, that Adam was not a primitive human, but a highly intelligent human being made in God's image who was up to the task that God had given him. But day-agers point to Genesis 2 and verse 23 after Eve was created. I know we haven't gotten that far. We will the next time. They point to that verse, verse 23 of chapter 2, after Eve was created, where Adam uses the Hebrew word ha-pa'am that literally means now at last. And day-agers believe that that word conveys the, the passage of a significant amount of time. He's naming animals, naming animals, naming animals. Probably going on days and weeks and months, they think. Naming animals. And then finally, Eve is created. And when he first sees her, he says, now at last, a term that indicates a great period of time. Again, day-agers insist that the sixth day of creation just has too much going on for it to be a literal 24 hours. And thus, the other days might be long, long, long days, ages as well. But is this the case? Verse 23 of chapter 2. The root word, pa'am, occurs about 115 times. And it has no particular amount of time associated with it. But that's just the root word. The very same word, ha'pa'am, occurs 13 times. And in numbers of those times... The length of time that's associated with the word doesn't seem actually to be a matter of that word, but uh, of the context that that word is found in. And in some other cases where time is a specific issue in context, it just doesn't seem like hapa'am, now at last, is necessarily related. Well... Old Testament professors, all these guys, they know the Hebrew way better than me. I did a study of Hapa'am. I went through it very carefully. And when I investigated the word, I found one place where Hapa'am, now at last, is used that is very interesting. In Genesis chapter 18, Abraham has a discussion with the Lord about God's intention to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah because of all of the sin that was there. Now, you may recall that Abraham's nephew, Lot, lived there, so he had a kind of vested family interest in appealing to God about God's intention to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. So Abraham goes back and forth in Genesis 18 in conversation with God, asking God if he would refrain from destroying the city if, for instance, he were to find 50 people who were righteous in the city. And then he says, well, what if there are just 45 people? What if there are just 40? What if it's just 30? What if there are just 20? And then he says, now at last, if only 10 righteous people are found there, would God destroy the city? The whole conversation 
between Abraham and God couldn't have lasted that long, probably just a few minutes. And yet Abraham says, now at last. So we might say that given the gravity of their discussion, Abraham experienced what felt like the passage of a long period of time, when in reality it was a short time. When you apply that sense, when Abraham, when, no, when Adam was first presented with Eve, Adam may have had a similar sense of much time passing. After all, he was put asleep for a while, when in reality it was not that long at all. So the choice seems clear. Do we accept an understanding of Genesis that attempts to accommodate the alleged proof of great age or evolution, or do we accept the clear meaning conveyed by God in his word? If you know the one true God, you know his word is reliable, and then the conclusion is not very difficult. You can trust God, and you should do so. God's word has been challenged and criticized and denied and reinterpreted and twisted and rejected again and again and again and again. But it is not God's word that has ever been proven in error or in need of reinterpretation contrary to its clear meaning or sense in context. What needs correction are those who diverge from it. That important observation should be applied to your understanding of every part of God's word, 2 Timothy chapter 3 points out. So I close with this, and I stated part of it before. I will expand it. Let God be found true, though every man be found a liar, as it is written in Psalm 51, verse 4, that you may be justified in your words, God, and prevail when you are judged, God. May that be our attitude and understanding. We can trust every detail of what God has said. Yes, there are hard passages. Yes, there are places where it's not real clear what God has said. And Christians have had differing opinions. But on this, Days in Genesis, the creation account itself, this is simple, clear language. We either hold to it and a whole series of ramifications follows, or we don't hold to it and a different series of ramifications follows. With that, we'll close now. And the next time I'm back, won't be next week, but the next time I'm back, we'll tackle the interesting subject of the creation of man and woman, which itself has struggles, woman created to be a helper for man. So before we get there, husbands, do not go home and say, well, here, you're to be the helper. Help. There's a lot to be said about that, so wait until we get there and I've said it. Then you consider what might be the proper approach to your wife. Let's pray. Lord, as I said up front, there are times when we must reflect upon your word and see to its reliability and answer those who have denied it. And Father, I hope in a a relatively simple way, I've demonstrated that today in the text. Such demonstration could be made at all parts of your word. And in various places, there have been those who have said, well, I don't believe that. I don't accept that. I believe this part, but I don't believe that part. All parts of your word can be defended. No error has ever been established or proven against your word, which is an astounding thing since so many have been alleged. With this exercise, may we be all the more confident of your truth. Seek it out. Seek to know it. Seek to live by it. Seek to share it. Seek to have others know it, that they may know you and be saved through faith in Christ our Lord. We pray. Amen. Rise, if you will, for the benediction. May you be blessed even by what you perhaps think of as tedious. I don't. But may you be blessed by all teaching from God's truth. And may you live according to it. Depart in his peace. Amen.